Welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by some of our great, great friends in the outdoors industry. These are the folks that make this totally possible to bring you some of the most incredible folks on this podcast for you to listen to and learn from. First friend of ours are the good folks over at Black Rifle Coffee. The website is blackriflecoffee.com. If you use the coupon code CRAFT15, you will get 15% off of your order, which excludes new releases, bundles, ready to drink stuff. It's a one-time use and it's good for one purchase. And you can get all of the coffee blends like Silencer Smooth, Beyond Black, and so on and so on. Please, please check out the good folks over at Black Ruffle Coffee. They're awesome and we love their stuff. Another sponsor of ours is the Personal Defense Network. If you use the coupon code FIELDCRAFT, you will get 10% off. Do you want to be better prepared to take care of yourself or the people you care about in an emergency? Well, Personal Defense Defense Network can help. They have an amazing offer for our listeners. If you sign up for Personal Defense Network premium membership with this exclusive Fieldcraft Survival deal, and get a, you'll get a full year of their premium membership for only three bucks. That's 96% off of the normal price. Go to personaldefensenetwork.com forward slash survival to take advantage of this great offer. The discount will be applied automatically uh, when you check out. So believe me, there are thousands who are committed to developing their personal defense skills. And this membership will give you access to hundreds of full-length videos led by expert instructors in areas of personal defense, safety, and security. So the topics that you'll find there, emergency medical techniques, armed and unarmed defense, firearms training, security techniques, and tactics. So please check them out, Personal Defense Network. Another one of the sponsors is Triarch Systems. Website is www.triarchsystems.com. Use the coupon code FIELDCRAFT and you will get 5% off of your order. The folks over at Triarch have been supporters of ours for a very, very long time. They make some pretty incredible firearms, modifying platforms like the AR-15 and the Glock, and they modify them to have better trigger pulls, smoother actions, and enhance accuracy. Of course, there's as much user input that's necessary with accuracy as there is having a quality firearm. But if you guys go over to triarchsystems.com, use the coupon code FIELDCRAFT, you'll get 5% off of your order. Last but not least are the friends over at Vertex. That is V-E-R-T-X. Vertex, uh, right now, if you use their coupon code, which is FIELDCRAFT, you're going to get 20% off of your order. Now, what can I say about Vertex? They're all about helping you find a solution for your apparel and gear needs, no matter what the situation dictates. Um, whether you're out on a trip, living your day-to-day life, concealed carrying, or just want to look good and feel good, they've got a solution for you. They make bags, packs, pants, shirts. A lot of their stuff is ballistic panel compatible, um, and it's perfect for carrying all of your everyday carry items, as well as some of the other items that you just wish you had that are beyond nice to have. So please check them out. Their website is vertex.com. Once again, that is V-E-R-T-X.com. Coupon code FIELDCRAFT. You're going to get 20% off of your order. All right, let's get to this podcast. Here we go. Hey, Toby, thanks for being on the podcast, man. Hey, Mike, great to be with you. Yeah, so Toby is the author of First Casualty, The Untold Story of the CIA and before we get into the book, I, I actually want to get your background. Um, 
unexpectedly, I didn't think you'd have an accent. And so um, <laughs> your origin story is important in the context of everything we're talking about. So let's start there with, as a start point. Tell me about yourself. Yeah, sure. Well, as you can guess from the accent, um, not born uh, on this side of the Atlantic, um, British born. I've been a uh, naturalized U.S. citizen since 2009. Um, but, you know, I grew up in uh my dad was in the Navy, so I was born in the south of England, grew up mostly in the north because we sort of move, moved around. Um, so grew up in Manchester. Uh, I joined the Navy myself um, after leaving high school um, and then got a, a sponsorship through through college, studied modern history uh, whilst ser still serving as a naval officer. And then in my late 20s, so after like 10 years of naval service i i left journalism uh, I, so I left the navy uh in part because it kind of wasn't exciting enough it was the cold war was over they managed to win the gulf war without me being involved you know i joined just after the Falklands war obviously it was before the whole 9-11 era um and it, you know it proved to be the case because you know i got into journalism and i was sent my sort of first posting as a journalist was northern ireland um, so I was covering the IRA ended its ceasefire just before I got there. So I was covering sort of terrorism and the, and the military as well as politics. Um, and that kind of set me on my path. Um, I was, uh, then sensed because I'd covered politics, I think pretty competently. I then got sent to, you know, the political capital of the world, Washington DC in 99. And so was, was, uh, was there on nine 11. Um, and that, you know, that eventually sent me to, you know, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan and, uh, a bunch of other places, uh, as a sort of, I guess, a war correspondent at that point. So, so throughout my career, you know, I then came back, um, to the U S, uh, in 2006 and have been here ever since, uh, you know, with forays overseas and stuff, but also covering U S politics. So. You know, kind of, um, you know, one of those paths that you never sort of design it that way, but has, has you know, has, has worked out um, to be, you know, pretty interesting. So when you when you covered all the wars and you're and you're, you know, I imagine in Northern Ireland and covering the IRA and the conflict that was going on there, um, and even the Balkans, you're in a foreign environment. But when you come to the U.S., and you're covering the U.S. kind of campaign on war, it, it's truly a, um, a foreign environment. I, I think about myself, if I was to be a journalist in the U.K. and then doing everything uh, from from my background and covering that, was that, a, was that something personally that you wanted to be invested in, that you want to be involved in? Like you had a curiosity for Americans and, and the Iraq-Afghanistan conflict. Is, what was the curiosity there? Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly. So, you know, the thing with Northern Ireland was it's part of the United Kingdom. I mean, that's why there's the conflict there. Yeah. Um, because of, you know, this, you know, the northern six counties sort of partitioned from from the rest of Ireland. So technically it was my own country, but it was sort of treated but as a news um, kind of issue. And, you know, by m many people are sort of in the British public as as a sort of foreign country, so it's sort of like a pseudo mm. um, 
foreign posting, but you know, same language, um, you know, many of the same, uh, you know, cultural traditions and and you know it, so it was in a way it was sort of like it was perfect because it was my own country it was a very small patch of land um and you know you had this sort of undeclared war going on at, that, that a lot of people didn't really know about so it was a great way to sort of cut my teeth and you know learn the basics of of uh politics and conflict reporting um, but, you know, I'd always had this sense that, um, you know, the United States was, you know, where it was at, you know. And I mean, I think if I'd had a choice, I would have gone from Northern Ireland and I think it would have maybe suited my sort of skill set a little bit better that I would have gone to the, to the Mideast from Northern Ireland rather than Washington, D.C., which was before 9-11 was kind of pure politics. Mm. But at first, um, I mean, I got a Greyhound bus pass in 1989 you know i was 23 years old and went you know from canada to mexico from you know east coast to west coast and you know in between um riding around on these greyhound buses um and that gave me a real like you know sense of the you know the vastness of the country and and just what a wonderful place it was you know and it was unencumbered by the class system that you have in Britain and all this thing of, of public schools, which are elite private boarding schools. It just seemed, you know, the land of opportunity and and freedom. And it was sort of unencumbered by a lot of the sort of the, the pettiness of, of, of Britain and the schools and the aristocracy and the monarchy and all that kind of stuff. So I think I was always sort of drawn to the United States. And I mean, it's interesting, you know, I think Churchill said, you know, divided by a common language. And there are a lot of differences between, you know, your average Brit and your average American. But I didn't find it, I didn't find it much of um, a problem sort of transitioning. So I, I felt very at home here, like very early on. And I remember an editor saying to me, <laughs> um, and this was not a compliment. She said to me, um, Oh, I always think of you as American, Toby. You know, <laughs> and <laughs> and it was like a snippy—I don't know what it was, you know—but it was a, it was a put down. Um, but she was right as well. Um, that I mean, I a few years after I, I became an American, and so I always felt um, I always felt comfortable here. And um, you know, now when I go back to the UK, I mean, I I, I like visiting it and stuff, but it it feels more of a foreign country. Uh, than, the, than the United States um, does. Um, and, you know, I think central, I mean, central to the reason why I became an American and central to my sort of affinity for the country even before I became a citizen was 9-11. And I think being here on 9-11, being in Washington, D.C., um, you know, it, it it was you know there's a cliches that changed everything but it, it did it, it you know i think it had a profound effect um on everybody that was here citizen or not and you know it's one of the things that that led to you know first casualty because it's a really a nine eleven. but i mean the subtitle is you know the untold story of the cia mission to avenge 9-11 and it's very much a 9-11 story it's about what we as a country um did you know, with 90% of the country sort of backing it and the UN and NATO 
backing it and, you know, only one member of Congress voting against authorizing force, you know, so we as a sort of unified country in a way that seems like almost bizarre at this point, um, that's what we did. And so I think, um, yeah, 9-11 has, you know, a, a very, you know, central sort of part of my life and many, many Americans. And, and, and that kind of cemented my sense of, of, of you know, being here and, and, and being eventually an American. What what drove you was it was it nine eleven specifically that drove you to focus your journalism on on conflict and war because I mean you 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 racked it up I mean you have a ton of combat experience embedded with members of the U S military um, and spent years doing that what what was what was the motivation behind getting in getting behind that specifically being a war journalist. So I think it was pretty deep in me anyway. So I'm fourth generation military myself. So my father was in the Navy. His father was in the uh, army and, um, and, and his father, my great grandfather was it was in the army, you know, so the, the great grandfather was sort of fighting in Egypt in the 1880s. Um, the grandfather fought, you know, in India and through world war two. And so I remember, you know, looking at my, grandfather's world war ii medals and his little sort of trinkets and you know a bracelet he picked off the the body of a dead soldier and i, I was sort of mesmerized by that and um so i think it i think it was pretty it was pretty deep in me and um you know as a kid all i wanted to do was join the navy or, or the or the military but it was i think because of my father it was, it was a particular sort of focus on on the navy and uh, so I think I think it was pretty deep within me. And I think Northern Ireland also really gave me a sense of that was what I was interested in, like this sort of intersection of politics and violence. Um, and then and, when, and coming to D.C. initially in 99, I had a feeling of a little bit like being a fish out of water initially because it was pure politics. And, you know, it was the end of the Clinton administration and you know getting to know people on capitol hill and in the white house and stuff i mean it was kind of interesting but i i think my heart was always elsewhere and so with 9 11 i think it just it just kind of underscored that you know my sort of interests and to an extent abilities lay on the on the military side of thing things more than pure politics how would you describe your um experiences in conflict and war. I know you were um, embedded with the military, the U.S. military during Fallujah, which was a yeah. which was a, a a very violent and deadly campaign for both the Marines and the the U.S. Army. And I think I think it was a defining uh, you know point in history. How would you describe yeah. your overall experience and even some of the pointed experiences that you uh, experienced as a journalist in combat? Well, yeah, it was pretty intense. I mean, Fallujah, I mean, um, I just got um, switched over from, uh, so I was with Task Force 2-2, which was 1st Infantry Division. And um, I just got switched over from one company to another. And a guy called Captain Sean Sims was the company commander. And, um, you know, I spoke, he's like, you know, welcome to the team kind of thing. And um, you know, an hour or so later, he was dead. You know, he was, he was shot in the head as he 
you know, walked into a house which had been cleared and then had been kind of the insurgents sort of infiltrated back. And so, you know, uh, I remember this guy, um, Sergeant Colin Fitz, you know, g- giving a, a sort of a pep talk to uh, his squad, you know, about, you know, the, the, you know, the commanding officers just being killed. And, you know, and we're not going to get killed. We're going to stay alive and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And, you know, the reason we're alive is this and the reason he is dead is that. And it was like, I couldn't believe it, you know, and I was just standing there and it was, it was sort of like being on the set of a Vietnam war movie. Oh, wow. And I mean, it was very, it was exciting and exhilarating, but it was, it was also like, shit, this is, this is real. You know, this, I was just talking to him. He, he's dead, you know, and, 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 you know, I mean, at that stage, as you get older, I think you sort of sense your sort of mortality a little bit more. At that stage, I wasn't thinking too much about getting killed myself. But, you know, um, I mean, another moment from that, just before we we were waiting at Camp Fallujah to, to go in um, into the city. And one of the, one of the photographers um was just like hey team photo you know of all the journalists and then one of the older journalists just said you know hey you're just doing that in case one of us gets killed and it was kind of an awkward wow. silence but it was true the photographer was taking the picture because you know there was a deep decent chance that one of us was going to get killed and then he's got a photo he can sell to newspapers all over the world about this dead journalist and so that brought it home to me as well um now none of us none of us what out of that group none of us was killed but you know one person was injured by an ied and you know another person got you know shrapnel in the shoulder so you know it was it was it was you know it was pretty serious um and i also remember being it's in sada city um i think it was uh i forget which division might have been one cab um but 2004 and you know going out on a patrol uh you know in a humvee going to a police station there's a few shots um didn't think much of it and then soldiers going on the roof and then before we know it the 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 police station is under sort of a full-scale attack and the platoon commander's like we need to get out of here i remember getting out running to the wrong vehicle um and seeing you know the dust kicking up at my feet and you know uh and but even then i was supposed to be going into a bradley i didn't want to go into a bradley because i wouldn't see anything from a bradley so i ran over to a humvee sort of like threw myself in the back of this humvee which then took off and i thought geez did i nearly just get killed because you know i I wanted a better view of this and and then i was you know sitting next to this guy you know who's like just scream I and mean, they'd had a lot of combat already he was just screaming like get some come and get some you know i was feeling lonely before today you know crazy crazy stuff and the rpgs you know um just kind of sailing across the sort of just in front of the um the windshield and you know burning barricades in the streets and doing u-turns so you know it was sort of it was an incredible um experience and um it's funny you know just talking about it now i i don't think about it that often but um but yeah you know it was um it was it was quite something 
We're just gonna interrupt this podcast for a hot second to bring another one of your sponsors to you, sponsors for this podcast that is, and that is the good folks over at 10,000. Their website is 10,000.cc. And if you use the coupon code FEELCRAFT, you're gonna get 15% off of your order. Now, I've been wearing their tactical shorts for a while. I run in them, I hike in them. I use them you know, pretty much for all sorts of active um, sports and ways of exercising, and I love them. Uh, they have internal compression shorts, so it's not like you're just swinging in the breeze. It keeps you real well-supported, and uh, they're super comfortable too. So please go to 10,000.cc, and you can see what I'm talking about. Uh, that short that I was mentioning was developed and tested with over 50 special ops members input uh, about how it could be better utilized for rucking, swimming, lifting, pretty much everything. Um, and I'll tell you, it's like the holy grail of workout shorts. So don't believe me, just look at the folks that are using them and you're gonna see that they are worn by folks uh, in the SF community from the Navy, the Marines, the armies, and so forth and so forth. So please check them out, 10,000.cc, coupon code Fieldcraft, you'll get 15% off your order. How many years in total did you spend overseas covering the conflict? Um, and then when when did it come to an end? Uh, I know, you, obviously now your your focus is is writing, but when did all that come to an end for you? So it's always sort of been mixed. So, um, so I was based in the Middle East, based in Jerusalem from like oh the end of oh three through to the beginning of oh five. But most of that period was in Iraq, but I was sort of going in and out. And then in 05, 06, I was based in London, but again, going in and out of Iraq a lot. Then I went, you know, I went to Zimbabwe, got arrested, was in 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 jail for two weeks. That was that was another experience. Um, but then, but even since I've been based here, so I did a book in 2009, um, Dead Men Risen, which was um, about uh, a British battle group in Helmand and a friend of mine who I had known from Northern Ireland actually was the battalion commander and he was killed in action um, in, with the Welsh Guards and so I went out to write about his battle group and they'd already lost a company commander and a platoon commander which was the first time those three levels of leadership had been killed uh, since the Korean War. Oh, wow. Uh, so even while based here in in 09 and and 2010, um, I was spending a lot of time in in Afghanistan. And then for first casualty, uh, you know, I was back in Afghanistan for six weeks last year. Um, that was a very different sort of experience. I didn't see a single American or NATO troop uh, in the, in those six weeks. It was Taliban everywhere. Um, it was very difficult to get around because there were you know. Taliban checkpoints all over the place. So, you know, it's sort of one of those things where I've gone, you know, the, the very long periods are, are sort of over, um, or for the time being anyway. Um, but I've been sort of, you know, going in and out really, you know, over the course of, you know, I guess 20 years. Did you did you cover any of the uh, pullout of Afghanistan? Was that part of your coverage, uh, like as an active journalist? Um, this August, no, I mean, I was, you know, I wrote, you know, I wrote kind of a couple of our pets and, and stuff about it. Um, but, uh, I'd be, so I'd been there in 
November, December uh, 2020, so last year. And so I felt uh, that, that that trip, you know, I interviewed Abdul Rashid Dostan, the warlord, you know, who was the U.S. ally, you know, key U.S. ally in 2001. So I interviewed him up in Shebegan, um, which was his stronghold, but it was surrounded by Taliban. It took me uh, nearly 10 days to get out. Because you know the 45-minute drive to Masri Sharif just was, was too dangerous. So I had a really strong sense the Taliban. This was this was over. You know, it's just a matter of time that the Taliban was going to take over. Um, a lot of um, Dostum's people, you know, had already had their families out in Turkey or in Uzbekistan. They they sort of had a plan. So um, so yeah, I wasn't there for the actual um, evacuation, but um, you know, I felt that. You know, I felt I was there at the point when the Taliban victory had sort of become inevitable. Well, just uh, just I'm curious because you have uh, almost as much as experience as I have in, in these foreign wars and these foreign countries. What's your overall opinion of your sense of how those things unfolded and then your your personal feeling about pulling out completely out of Afghanistan. I know a lot of people have different conflicting views depending on their experience, but you have a lot of experience in, in both theaters of, war, theaters of war. Yeah, well, I have a lot of feelings about it and a lot of thoughts. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, so in a way it, got, it comes back to 2001. You know, we had um, a formula at the beginning which led to victory, albeit provisional victory, which was, you know, a light footprint strategy in which you had CIA teams um, like Team Alpha, who, you know, who who was central to the to the book, and ODAs, you know, twelve man Green Beret teams, who were advisors to the indigenous resistance, which was fighting against the foreign invaders, who were the Arabs of Al Qaeda, and you know, the awesome might of U.S. air power was certainly key in that, you know, in the military equation made the, you know, that made the difference that that ended the Taliban regime, you know, for 20 years anyway. Um, but it wasn't an American fight. It was an Afghan fight with American advisors. And it was one with hundreds of Americans on the ground and not the 100,000 plus we, we came to have. And so, you know, I don't pretend uh, I'm, I'm not going to be one of these people sort of sitting in an armchair in Northern Virginia in 2021 saying, oh, if only we'd done this and if only we'd done that, it would have been super easy. And if I'd been in charge, you know, I mean, I think there would, you know, there are no easy answers in Afghanistan. That's part of the nature of the place. But I do think that um, if we'd stuck with some kind of small footprint operation instead of you know, mission creep sort of taking hold and nation building and a hundred thousand troops and, you know, a centralized democracy that, you know, in a country that in some ways is just, it's not really a country. I mean, I think we took a, we took a pretty bad sort of wrong, wrong turn there. And then the end, I mean, again, you know, I, I, you know, I believe we should have left a residual force in there of several thousand Americans um, 
to help stiffen the spine of the Afghan forces and the Afghan government and stop that, stop the, the place collapsing the way that it did. Um, but, you know, there was a political desire for a bumper sticker that, you know, we ended the war, we brought the troops home or whatever it was. And, you know, so that, so, you know, and then of course, the first thing is the decision to just pull everyone out. And then this, this second thing is the way it was done, which was, I mean, I don't think anybody could really disagree. You know, it was catastrophic. It was horrendously mismanaged and, um, and really tragic. And, um, you know, we're going to see, uh, the results of it, I think for, for many, many years to come. And I mean, I've been quite involved, um, in helping get Afghans out. Um, and a number of members of Team Alpha, I mean, Shannon Span, Mike Span's widow, who's been very deeply involved, David Tyson, who was with Mike Span when he was killed. I mean, they're working, you know, almost every waking hour to help get Afghans out because, you know, we let them down. And, you know, one of the things I really find difficult is the sort of the blaming of the Afghans, you know. So we sort of pulled out, we you know, closed Bagram, we, you know, all the supply lines were removed and and we're, we're just like we're just out of here and then we turn around and criticize them for not fighting you know when they were facing inevitable defeat and gruesome death you know so yeah i have a lot of feelings about it yeah yeah i, I have similar feelings I, I just got my family one of my afghan commandos from early in the global war on terror i just got him out and his his uh, wife and nine kids um, just got him out to uh, UAE, and that was a difficult. Under, I mean, it took me two months of working through the, the clock, and you know, like I have a good group of guys that save our allies. But if I wasn't a special operations guy with CIA experience, <laughs> I would have had no luck getting any yeah. of my guys out. And um, yeah, it's a it's a difficult situation altogether. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I managed to, with the help of some of these people. Um, and others who I don't even know because it's like these net, you know, these sort of overlapping networks of people sort of working for sort of no recognition or sort of reward. But the translator I worked with in Masri Sharif um, just a, a year ago is now at Fort Dix. You know, we got him out, um, and he, you know, he flew to Doha, and then now he's in the United States. Can, he's me living in my basement shortly, you know, and so that's wonderful, you know, and that does take, it does take the edge, you know, off the tragedy of, of what happened. And, and also I, I feel it kind of goes back to that feeling after nine 11 of, of unity. I mean, I think the vast majority of the country is, is behind, maybe not particularly actively, but they support helping the Afghan allies. Um, and so, you know, the country's been very, very divided in, in recent years. But, you know, here you have, you know, bands of Americans, um, some have military experience, some don't, um, but people sort of banding together to get something done. And there's a bit of a the spirit of uh, post 9-11 in that, I feel. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, let's, let's transition into your book, First Casualty, The Untold Story of the CIA. Um, their mission to avenge 9-11. I, I know um, you obviously have a lot of experience, but what was the what was the reason? Was there something specific about writing this particular book? Why 
what inspired you, inspired you to write this? And then how did that journey kind of unfold? So I think certainly the roots were in 9-11. And so I was, you know, I was in the U.S. covering U.S. politics and everything else, you know, in those, well, for a couple of almost, yeah, almost two years after 9-11. And so, you know, I vividly remember hearing about Mike Spann, you know, former Marine Corps officer, uh, CIA paramilitary, who became the first casualty in combat after 9-11. But it was just a very brief news story. I mean, it was big, but there was anthrax going on and we soon into, um, you know, planning for Iraq. Um, I remember Shannon Spann, um, to December 10th, 2001, giving a very eloquent, like beautiful eulogy to Mike at Arlington. And I remember being very struck by her sort of grace and poise. And she was another CIA officer. And so this, so, you know, it was unusual for, um, even someone killed in action to be um, the affiliate, their affiliation to the CIA to be made public. Um, and then Shannon was, uh, Shannon Span was also kind of her cover was, was gone. And so, you know, it put a real human face on the CIA for me. Um, but then the, the news agenda just moved on and it was sort of largely forgotten, but it was, it was a couple of years later and it was weirdly enough, it was in Iraq and I remember it was at the Hamra Hotel in Baghdad, which was a sort of journalist hotel. And somebody said to me, did you ever see the footage of that CIA officer just like running for his life in the fort? He killed loads of people and this huge battle going on. And I hadn't seen it. So I looked it up on YouTube and that was David Tyson, um, who was with Mike Spann on November 25th, 2001, when Mike was killed, um, when there was an Al-Qaeda prison uprising 400 prisoners who who were kept in this sort of 19th century fort outside Masary Sharif. And I remember seeing this footage and there's David sort of running for his life and he's clutching a pistol and an AK and, you know, and, and he sort of bursts into this, the, the, what I subsequently found out, the headquarters building on the northern side of the fort and you can see that stare in his eyes. like, And I remember... And he's, but he's still functioning, you know, and he's still, but I remember looking at him and his expression and hearing his voice and thinking like, wow, what's that guy just been through? What's he, he doesn't know whether he's going to live like another five minutes, another like five hours or, 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 or what. And, you know, what a sort of unique experience, almost unique. And um, so I was really interested in him and that, that sort of never left me. Um, and so a few years later, it was 2013, I just tracked him down, you know, um, and, uh, you know, I found he was, there was an acknowledgement to him in um, a book written by a professor at Indiana University. And that's where David had studied. He was, he was like a, a Central Asia specialist, a linguist, um, and he'd been an academic before we joined the agency. And so this professor, you know, um, forwarded my email to, to David and he phoned me up and said, you know, here you, you want to talk to me. So I met him in a Panera bread, um, in Vienna, Virginia, <laughs> just a few miles away from where I am now in 2013. And he couldn't say very much, uh, cause he was still in the agency. Um, but you know, he was friendly and, uh, and so we sort of, we kept in touch 
And I always hoped that he would, um, you know, be able to, I felt that he had a desire to sort of talk about what had happened publicly. I mean, he talked about it internally. Um, and then he retired at the beginning of 2020 and, um, and just, uh, you know, shot me an email and said, Hey, you know, I'm out, I'm ready to talk. And, um, so he, you know, and that was just incredible because, you know, he, I don't know how many Al Qaeda he killed that day, but at, at least a dozen and probably twice that, and maybe close to 50, um, in at very close quarters. I mean, a foot or two away, um, as these prisoners sort of flung themselves at him and he, you know, used his AK or Mike's AK actually, um, that he managed to grab and, and just killed them because it was a case of sort of kill or be killed. And, but David was always very clear from the outset that he didn't want it to be a book about him. And, um, he wanted to be, it to be about team Mike and, and team alpha. And so, um, you know, eventually I did get cooperation from the CIA and they helped facilitate some of the interviews. Um, but most of it was just, you know, um, you know, shoe leather, you know, I, I, Justin Sapp, uh, was Green Beret, 29 years old in 2001. He was still serving as a, he, he is still serving now as a Colonel. Um, I contacted, you know, he was semi, he was out in the open. So, you know, I, I, you know, I contacted him by LinkedIn or something, I think, um, J.R. Seeger was the chief diary speaker, case officer like David Tyson. Um, he's, you know, he was writing thrillers and doing a bit of contracting work and stuff. So I spoke to him. And so I just I went from from person to person and just built up the picture of of what happened. And I think also the sort of credibility amongst these guys that, you know, I didn't have an agenda. I just wanted to tell their story. And um, and then, you know, there was a kind of a it felt like there was a, a tipping point where sort of people in the community had decided, yeah, this, this guy's, you know, OK, he, he's um, he's not going to screw us over. And so, you know, people like Kofa Black, um, who was the director of counterterrorism center in 2001, who really who presented the war plan to Bush, Hank Crumpton, who was. Uh, head of counterterrorism center special operations sort of new unit that Kofa black set up uh that ran the war day to day i spoke to hank crumpton and then george Tennant. and so i just went from sort of person to person and then when i i knew i had it or felt i had enough for a book um i contacted uh cia public affairs and to my surprise they were helpful you know and they did help set up some of the interviews with people you know like andy from the team for instance is still serving um Brian, who is head of Special Activity Center, was at the farm with Mike and Shannon um, and also served with Mike in the Marine Corps. Um, they facilitated an interview with him. Um, so, you know, it's funny because people now say, oh, you know, he got cooperation from the CIA as if some, I don't know, some guy with a deep voice from Langley phoned me up and said, do you want to come in and speak to Team Alpha? It wasn't quite like that. That's 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 amazing. I mean, the fact that you um, were able to link up with Tyson in that in that uh, Panera, um, it's, I know it's phenomenal. I I you know Mike Spann. Spies always want to meet in Panera Breads for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I know uh, Mike Spann is um, and his story 
in my special operations career because I, you know, I was in, I probably think I was in selection or the Q course or something when that was going down. But um, he was my inspiration for wanting to be a paramilitary operations officer, a ground branch guy. And, you know, despite him losing his life, um, just that mission set and his military experience and his, his story was so amazing. Yeah. Um, that that's what kind of, uh, led me down that path. Hey guys, we're just going to interrupt the podcast to bring you another one of our sponsors. And that is headspace. The website is headspace.com forward slash fieldcraft, and you will get a free one month trial when you go there using our link, which is headspace.com forward slash fieldcraft. Wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that helped you sleep, focus, act, or simply be better? Well, there is. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. Some of the folks here at Fieldcraft have tried using Headspace to help them focus on work, which here at Fieldcraft, we have plenty of it, and it's drastically improved their productivity. Those folks will tell you that it makes them feel better, happier, more present in their everyday life. And let's face it, that's what you guys deserve. Uh, you only have one life to live, right? So Headspace meditation is simple. Um, it's actually made very simple by their easy to follow guide. So if you go to headspace.com slash fieldcraft, that is headspace.com slash fieldcraft, you'll get a free one month trial with access to their full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head over to headspace.com slash fieldcraft today. I'm curious as to some of the things that you discovered because, you know, you're doing this book from a, uh, I, I expect a journalist point of view where you're trying to be, uh, unbiased and, and telling the story as it is. Was there anything significant that you discovered in your research about how things unfolded with these brave men, you know, kind of being put together and assimilated, which is an amazing story in itself. Um, but is there any highlights that kind of took you back where you're like, oh man, like I had no clue? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, so yeah, Mike Spam, like an incredible person, an incredible American. And it's easy now, 20 years on, to just see him as sort of like a cardboard cutout kind of thing and rather than a real person. And I, I tried really hard to, um, you know, to portray just what sort of uh, man he was. And, you know, in some ways, I think he was the personification of like America after 9-11. Um, I mean, a, a guy with very strong sort of principles of, of right and wrong, you know, with us or against us. And somebody with like a burning desire to get out there and get the people who did 9-11 stop it happening again. I mean, of all the people on the team, I think, I mean, everybody was fired up, but Mike, it was sort of um, on another level. And, you know, this was a guy with um, a six-month-old baby, um, newly remarried, two daughters. He had every reason not to go. And not only did he go, but he sort of fought to go. You know, he fought to, to get on, on that team. And, you know, the rest of the um, the rest of the team uh, had that in, in them as well. And so what really kind of surprised me was um, 
the sort of the extent of the unknown with all this and how improvised it was. And so um, there was a there was a plan um, called the you know, set out in the Blue Sky Memo um, by C CTC Counterterrorism Center at CIA because teams had been CIA teams had been going into the Panjshir Valley um, for more than two years before 9/11 and David Tyson was one of those people actually who's going back and forth via Dushanbe. But beyond that, I mean, the Pentagon had no plan, even though you think the Pentagon has got a plan for everything up to and including invading Canada. They didn't have a plan for Afghanistan. And so the extent to which um, this was a sort of improvised operation really, really sort of surprised me. And that they would, you know, they were flown at Team Alpha, got there three days before ODA 595, the, the horse soldiers. Um, on October the 17th, 2001. And, you know, they had limited knowledge of Dostum. They didn't know whether, you know, Dostum was going to turn around and, and, and shoot them. I mean, he had fought uh, with the Soviets against the Mujahideen backed by the CIA and the US government um, in, the, in the 1980s. And so I, you know, I grew to have tremendous admiration for like J.R. Seeger, the chief, uh, who had to sort of manage the tribes, you know, it's like an OSS sort of operation mm. or even an opera, you know, like a British colonial operation in the 1900s during the great game where very small numbers of, in this case, Americans working with the tribes, the different ethnic groups and, you know, using sort of a mixture of cash and coercion and persuasion and flattery. I mean, great sort of, you know, CIA case officer kind of attributes. Um, he and the rest of the team, I mean, Alex Hernandez, who's a deputy chief, a special forces sergeant major, um, who, who, you know, had a full career um, uh, in um, special forces, inclu including ending up on a special mission unit and then went and had a full career as a CIA paramilitary. You know, these were sort of incredible people who took um, I mean, Mike was killed, obviously, and they took incredible risks every single day they were out there. I mean, often they were they were breaking down into three man teams, you know, trekking across the mountains on horseback or in sort of battered Toyotas. And so um, that to me was sort of um, was incredible because, you know, once victories happened and, the, you know, the early history is written, you sort of, it's easy to sort of um, get the feeling this was all inevitable and it, or, or that it was easy. And it was neither inevitable nor easy. And so that's, um, that, you know, that was, I think that was the thing that really, that really struck me most. When, when I'm, I'm curious about, um, I mean, I hear even the stories now of Masood's son in Panjir Valley and kind of that, um, that effect of him being the last standing chance for liberty in Afghanistan against the Taliban, and in the beginning, early days after the assassination of Massoud uh, prior to 9/11 um, was September 9th. Yeah. Um, what was your what was your assessment in kind of the research of this book? of where that relationship and kind of where that transition, I don't want to say went wrong, 
but but changed because you know the invasion as we look at it was um in early history was this idea of paramilitary operations officers and the horse soldiers of the green berets and tora bora and all these very specific points in history and then it kind of got lost along the way and you almost see the the losing of touch with uh the northern alliance and it just becomes this different animal was there a specific point in history was there a reason for that well yeah i mean i think it was early december 2001 so right after this victory um so you know and i interviewed dostum last year and he was in some ways he was like a little boy who didn't understand why his friends had abandoned him Mm. i mean you know he's a brutal guy with blood on his hands i mean welcome to afghanistan you know anybody anybody there you know has that kind of background but i mean he was a fearsome fighter and you know, an incredible ally who was sort of revered by the Team Alpha and the ODA 595 people to this day. But, you know, the US government, as you well know, is sort of a big, like, lumbering beast with different elements within it. And so while the CIA and special forces, or certainly the ones who had had anything to do with Dostum, um, you know, had this great sort of aberration for him, uh, you know, the State Department, absolutely not persona non grata almost immediately and so you know in early december 2001 there was a there was a possibility of a sort of a real afghan style deal and hamid karzai was pushing this where you had a small element of the taliban the defeated taliban who would have been incorporated into the afghan um, government but instead I think the Pentagon, Rumsfeld, and, you know, flushed with victory, you know, and the sense that, you know, America could just do anything and it was it was pretty easy. It was like, no, you know, again, back to this sort of withersaw against us. And so the Taliban, you know, I'm not suggesting it would have been easy to incorporate even small parts of the Taliban in the Afghan government. But anyway, that was pushed aside. And instead, the decision was to sort of to go for broke. And then, you know, it moved away moved away from CIA, moved it to the Pentagon um, and State Department. And, you know, there was this, you know, we're going to build a centralized democracy, which means that the warlords are bad, you know. And so we have to exclude people like um, Dostum and Fahim Khan and, you know, all those Northern Alliance people because they're just, you know, warlords and killers. And we want sort of nice you know, English-speaking technocrats who've been in exile. But the problem was, you know, we end up with Ashraf Ghani and, you know, the classic technocrat, you know, and, and look, look, you know, look what he did at the end. He just, he just, you know, ran to save his own skin. And so, you know, a lot of these figures, including Karzai, just didn't have the, have the support in the country that the so-called warlords had. And, and so we were trying to centralize things and in, in a way, I mean, you think we would know this because, you know, we're the United States and a federal, federal system um, that doesn't, you know, you know, generally speaking, doesn't like the central government or feels too attached to attached to it sometimes. But, 
no, so we, you know, so we should have gone for some kind of, you know, regional strategy rather than a centralized one. And so, yeah, we just completely um, lost sight of the things that had worked early on. And I think just, you know, it's, you know, a classic sort of American, I don't know what, what you want to call it, over optimism or arrogance or, or whatever. But, you know, we thought that we could make Afghanistan like us. And, and it's not it's not like us, you know, it's a, it's a very it's a very different place. And even in these early weeks and months like that I cover in the book and through Team Alpha's experience, you know, you it's sort of eerie looking at some of the things they went through. Like even in victory, um, there were these kind of signs of the problems like unreliable allies, you know, fake surrenders, um, you know, the problems of friendly fire i mean the, the jdam 2000 pound jdam dropped on a friendly position november 26 2001 the first five purple hearts of the afghanistan war were from you know were from a jdam um and so um you know but i guess in victory we just sort of pushed pushed those things aside and now i mean yeah talking about the panchir now i mean it's that's where this is where we were in the 1990s, you know. So on 9/11, you know, Ahmad Shah Massoud had been assassinated um, by Al Qaeda, you know, with the help of the Taliban um, two days earlier. Um, but he held the only sort of safe territory in Afghanistan, and that's back where we are now. Um, but the problem is now, I don't sense any um, interest from the U.S. government for the foreseeable future. In um, in helping Masood's son out. In fact, I almost get a sense that they wish he'd just, you know, die or go away. And so it's, you know, it's another aspect of the tragedy. Yeah, it's a it's a tragedy that seems to have gone full circle. And um, I mean, it took twenty years to to come full circle. Um, I'm interested in in David Tyson and kind of that experience that defined the rest of his career. Um, uh, I know there's, there, there had, I hadn't read any specific details outside of the, the vague narratives that were stitched together, but there seems to be from your book, very detailed um, down to the round of, you know, him using 75 pistol rounds, um, 30 from, uh, Mike Spans, AKMS, and the specifics of that uprising from Al Qaeda, and there is video of it. There's documentary elements of this, but were you able to discuss with David Tyson the specifics of that event? And I'm wondering if if you did kind of the sense that you got from him of his reflection on that and his, and the emotions that he was tied to because. I have to imagine, um, I mean, it's difficult to watch in the footage that's available, but this man's lived it and then unique to a lot of experiences continued to serve his country in that position for uh, nearly two decades. Yeah, I mean, this was, this, you know, in a way was one of the central reasons why I did the book. I mean, David... Tyson's an incredible person. I mean, you know, he speaks about 12 languages. 
Um, he's as humble and unassuming a person as, as you could imagine. Um, you know, he had this really interesting background. You know, he grew up in Pennsylvania, you know, very sort of ordinary background. Um, but he had this, you know, he sent a letter to the French Foreign Legion when he was 17, asking them if he could join. So he always had this something in him. I don't know where it came from. Of just wanting to go to these far-flung places and learn about people and you know that eventually led him to the cia but he was not you know so on the team the so eight person team two case officers david and jr seager four paramilitaries a medic and a green beret captain of those eight david was the least military militarily ex experienced i mean they had two short stints in the army he'd been an artilleryman and he'd been um an intelligence officer um but, you know, he was not an elite warrior. And so um, he was the last of the eight that you would have wanted to put in that position, you know, of, of very intense combat. And to me, it's just sort of astonishing that uh, rather than like freezing or curling up into a ball or running the other direction, you know, when he heard Mike Spann shout, you know, Dave, 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 that David Tyson ran towards him. And, you know, Mike had uh, used his AKMS to take out a couple of the prisoners who were, who were sort of rushing him from the front. Then he had prisoners jumping on his back and um, he shot, um, I think, a couple with his pistol. And then he was sort of overwhelmed. And by the time David got to him, you know, there were four um Al-Qaeda guys on top of him um, and wrestling, you know, wrestling with him. And David shot all four of them twice, sort of one, two, three, four, four, three, two, one. Um, he kicked Mike uh, and no sign of life, you know, um, not, no movement. There's, there's, you know, blood on the ground, you know, and all hell breaking loose. And, you know, David grabbed his AK, Mike's AKMS because David did not have a rifle with him that day. He had his Browning, his own Browning high power pistol. And, you know, he just had to kill his way out. And I don't know what the chances of survival would have been. 5%, 10%. I mean, just incredible. I mean, you know, um, he had these people just fling themselves uh, at him. And so the first question for me was like, what made him act the way he did. And he, he sort of brushes it off a little bit and talks about, you know, well, muscle memory, or I didn't have a choice. There was no, you know, you know, there's no dilemma or rational kind of thought process behind it. And he describes, you know, tunnel vision and loss of hearing and um, time slowing down, like classic sort of stress reactions. But I think it was sort of the core of his character, really, you know, something, you know, deep inside him that, um, that made him react that way. And, um, you know, looking back on it now, I mean, he spent 20 years trying to come to terms with this and mm -hmm. he thinks about it every day. And I think to some extent, every minute of every day, and he's very eloquent in discussing this. He's not afraid of, I mean, he doesn't view himself as a hero. He, you know, made, some, he, you know, he talks about the goofy things he did that day and how, you know, a couple of days later, you know, he kind of was almost in pieces um, and he was you know, shaking so much that his rifle was sort of knocking against uh, 
a tank. So he, there's no sort of sort of self-aggrandizement about him. Um, and he, I think he made a decision. Um, you know, this certainly has defined his life, but he made it and his career. Um, but he made a decision to sort of incorporate it um, rather than sort of bury it or push it away and recognize that it was a part of himself and try and um, get some good out of it or turn it to, to, to sort of some sort of um, uh, positive thing. And a big part of that was honoring Mike's band. You know, I mean, clearly David has elements of survivor's guilt. And, you know, he says, you know, if you'd have picked me or Mike in that situation of who was going to survive and who wasn't, you'd have picked Mike nearly every time because, you know, he was this strapping, you know, ripped uh, Marine um, with, you know, uh, you know, a lot of recent um, military experience. But, you know, it was just the way the, the, the role of the dice, you know, it was it was just where Mike was standing compared to where David was standing. And um, and so he decided, and I think this was a conscious decision, that he was going to live his life for Mike. He was going to make his life worthwhile because if he didn't, that would be sort of dishonoring Mike. So he survived and therefore, you know, he should, you know, live a good life and a, a positive life. And I mean, he has nightmares, six, six nights out of seven of being sort of pursued by Al-Qaeda you know, he will, you know, turn some music on in the car and the tears will stream down his his face. But, you know, he's a great family man. You know, he has two grown up um, children. He he became a member of the Senior Intelligence Service, SIS, you know, so the higher ranks of the CIA. Um, he became, he worked on the Russian illegals roll up, I think, in 2000. 11, he, you know, he became a deep Russia specialist. I mean, he spoke Russian um, already in, in 2001, but he became a, a Russia specialist. And so, um, you know, he's a highly functioning sort of individual. Um, and, you know, within the agency over the years, he's, he's given talks um, about, you know, what, what he went through. So he's trying to sort of, you know, give back and, um, and, uh, you know, teach some lessons or allow other people to sort of draw some conclusions um, about, you know, his experience. And that's sort of an incredible thing. And it's been an incredible thing for me to be part of, um, to get to know this this guy, because there are, you know, there are very, very few people who've been through uh, what he went through and come out the other side. Yeah, what an amazing story, man. It's, um, I can't even... Yeah, it's a up close and personal and intimate um, loss for him. All right, guys, one more minor, minor interruption before we conclude this podcast. And we want to bring you the good folks from Element. That is L-M-N-T. The website you want to go to is lmnt.com forward slash fieldcraft. And if you use that code, drinklmnt.com forward slash fieldcraft. You'll get a free sample pack. All you have to do is just pay for shipping. 
Element is one of those really, really cool drinks that we have here at Fieldcraft. A bunch of the folks, uh, including myself, we squirrel it away whenever it comes into the office. And it's a drink mix that is taking over the world. With Element, you can get valuable electrolytes back after fasting uh, or working out, which for me, I do intermittent fasting and I work out by hiking the hills over here. And it's a great electrolyte replacement uh, for when you're sweating like crazy, especially when you're out here in the high desert and you don't realize that you're sweating. This is what you want to consume. So if you guys are doing the keto diet, it helps with the keto flu. It fights carb cravings. It's just a good way to kind of jumpstart your day, like getting you ahead of that power curve uh, by providing the hydration that you need. So Element has no sugar, artificial ingredients, or strange coloring. And there are a lot of professional athletes in leagues like the NBA and the NFL that use it as well as Olympic weightlifting teams, Navy SEALs, um, and plenty of other uh, special operations folks. So if you use our link, which is drinklmnt.com forward slash fieldcraft, you will get that free sample pack. Just pay shipping. Try it out. I don't think you're going to regret it. Um, they have a no BS customer service uh, policy. And I'll tell you something, they're it's totally, totally not going to be needed because I think you're going to really like it. So please check them out. Those are the good folks over at Element. Back to the podcast. I'm curious in this book, did you have the opportunity to talk at all to uh, the children of, of Mike Span? No, I didn't. So I spoke to his parents, um, Johnny and Gail in, in Winfield, Alabama. And I spoke to um, Shannon Spann, who initially didn't want to talk to me because I think it was just sort of too painful. Um, you know, so he has three children, Allison, who's a um, TV reporter in Mississippi, uh, Emily, um, who's graduated from Auburn University, which was where Mike went to, to college, and Jake, who was the six-month-old baby. And Allison has Allison has has spoken quite a lot. We've had a little bit of engagement on Twitter recently, um, and but we haven't spoken. And I I would have liked to have spoken to her. I mean, she was, you know, nine years old, I think, um, on nine eleven. So, um, you know, her memories uh, somewhat limited. Although, you know, she has given some some moving interviews about her sort of experience being in elementary school kid on 9-11 and um, I mean the other thing about them is Mike's first wife died of cancer at the end of 2001 so these children the two children Alison and Emily lost their father and then their mother within a matter of weeks which is sort of unbelievably oh, devastating wow. for them um, and so yeah I hope I will um, get to speak to them but uh, I mean it's it's difficult. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to sort of, uh, you know, focus too much on, on their sort of pain and get them to sort of go through it. Um, you know, one up, you know, and yet another time when certainly Alison has spoken about it pretty extensively, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly, uh, part of the story and, and, you know, part of, history and, and Mike's legacy. So, you know, I, I hope that uh, at some point, um, 
there'll be an opportunity to talk. Yeah. It, yeah. So, man, that's tough. I didn't hear, I didn't know that um, the daughters lost their mother and then Mike in a specific period of time. So Jake is from his, uh, his current wife. Um, yes, that's right. So, so yes. So Jake is Shannon and Mike's son. So he is, you know, 20 now because his, you know, his, you know, he was six months on nine 11. Um, and then Shannon remarried, um, a few years later, um, a C, uh, married a CIA case officer and they had a son together. So it's a very sort of blended family with, with Jake being in a way at the center of it because he's the, the child of, of Mike and Shannon. And, you know, I, I mean, you know, we talked about David Tyson, but you know, another sort of hero in this is, is Shannon's back, you know, who had her life, you know, ripped apart, um, in 2001, uh, with a baby, a, a new husband, um, and she, she'd been previously married, you know, so it was kind of like a sort of a pivot point in her life. And she was just starting to see how things could unfold. I mean, there was a plan actually for her and Mike to both be stationed in Pakistan. Um, uh, obviously that all would have changed because nine 11 anyway, but you know, she's been through, uh, you know, incredible, trauma because you know when um you know you had two two deaths um and at, at a point when you know she wasn't integrated in the span family you know she was just she was a lawyer from california mike was from alabama you know uh, very different sort of backgrounds and so she had a lot to a lot to um to deal with and is and yeah a little bit you know like david is still um working through it um and you know again bringing sort of up to the present day and helping afghans i mean you know last week um you know shannon span and david tyson were on the phone talking to each other about a flight manifest for getting afghans out of afghanistan you know 20 wow. years after mike died and i've sort of got used to it because i've got to know all these people pretty well and, and talking them to them a lot about the sort of first the book but then the um getting the afghan allies out and also it's now you know become mixed up with sort of just normal sort of friendship um but uh you know when that happened i just thought like you know i one of the thoughts i had was that my spam would be very proud but just sort of an incredible um kind of giving back and also healing without doing it consciously or talking about it. I mean, no one was saying this was for Mike, but you know, there was, you know, Mike's widow and the guy who Mike's comrade who was with him when he died working to get Afghan allies, the guys who Mike had sort of fought alongside um, in 2001 out of the country. Again, sort of like a, you know, I'm a big believer in true stories are much better than, fiction and that was one of those things that you couldn't have sort of scripted that and it was you know it was a, it was a beautiful moment yeah it seems that um i mean there's so much information there and it seems you know this is one sliver of the story do you think in discovering kind of the 
um, access to uh, other stories and segments of this, how this unfolds, that there will be a part two of this or other series of this potential storyline or, or, or are you thinking that, you know, you're going to close the chapters on, on this particular story when moving on to your next book? Um, I think I'll probably do something different. Um, but I do think, you know, you know, in book publishing, you know, there's a hardback and then there's a paperback and there's, you know, I think everything in the book was covered up to the fall of the Taliban because the book went to press, you know, sorry, the fall of the Afghan government to the Taliban. Book went to press, you know, a couple of months before um, August. But, you know, as I said, I already had the sense that the Taliban was going to take over. But of course, what wasn't covered was the, you know, the disastrous exit and, and the sort of ongoing efforts to evacuate. So there's a sort of a natural epilogue, I think, um, for a paperback edition, which is a sort of, you know, as I say, kind of going back in a way, sort of in in some ways, a sort of recreation of that sense of of of, of what happened after 9-11, of, of people banding together and getting things done. And obviously, you know, a lot of symmetry with um, Shannon Spann and David Tyson and other members of, of Team Alpha, like Scott Spellmeyer and um, Justin Sapp um, and, and others uh, being involved. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, so I think that in a way is the sort of the last chapter. Um, and in terms of what next, I mean, you know, there's so many stories out there in in the world. And, you, you know, you know, I always want to choose something that's, you know, has a kind of a rich texture and is, is sort of can stand on its own in terms of, you know, a sort of a gripping story. But at the same time, relate something that's related to the bigger bigger picture sort of strategically historically and i certainly felt that team alpha story you know which was such you know says so much about 9-11 and the united states in, in that period was that and so um you know uh i'll you know i'll be and i'm sort of looking for something um something else that you know captures both the sort of granular gritty sort of detail of of of, of war and, and and people in these extraordinary circumstances but also sort of speaks to something bigger yeah i love that i, I mean you're dead men right uh risen bandit country um you also have that book uh sonoist uh tuz nude mehed is that right is that the uh how to oh, say that's that? A trans that is the Estonian translation of Dead Men Dead Risen. Men Risen. Yeah. There's a whole other story to that, which is kind of amusing, but I won't bore you with that. It's the same um, same book, uh, yeah. different uh, translation of it. Right, right, right. Because it was an Estonian unit in Helmand in 2009, so they eventually, <laughs> they, they eventually translated it. And you said it was and then banned. It got banned in Estonia. Yeah, it was banned in Estonia. Other. That's crazy. What's your, what's your favorite um, project out of all the projects that you worked on? Do you have a favorite project for uh, uh, like the writing process that you uh, favor? So it's funny, you know, people, in fact, one of my kids said to me, you know, you know, of the three books you've written, which do you like best? And I couldn't answer. And I, I, in the end, the best answer I could give him, my son, who's like 12, was, you know, it's just like children. You can't choose between them. You, you know, you love them equally in different ways. <laughs> 
Yeah. And, you know, I can't say, like, I love you more than your sister. And so I feel um, a little bit like that. Um, at the same time, though, I do feel like somebody said, somebody used the phrase to me the other day about your body of work, which I thought was kind of cool because I never thought of like having a body of work. Um, but there is a, you know, there is a sort of, there's a line between these three books. Um, and, uh, you know, it's about, you know, the reality of, of war, but also, you know, what it, what it means, um, you know, and the sort of more, how it fits in with sort of the more global scale. And I do think hopefully anyway, that you sort of get better and you, you sort of, you mature as a person and as a, you know, and as a writer, I, th I think, I think possibly, you know, in Dead Men Risen, for instance, there was sort of too much detail. I mean, when I saw the book, I was like, oh, shit, you know, it's too big. And it is it's a doorstop, you know, which is good value. You get a lot of words for your money. But I think with with um, First Casualty, you know, there's a lot of stuff I didn't put in um, because I wanted to keep that very sort of clear line through the book, that clear sort of narrative and and kind of. You know, I didn't need to name every CIA officer at headquarters. I didn't need to name every Green Beret, even though in a way I wanted to, because it, it was, it's part of the history. And also, you know, if I've interviewed somebody, I like to sort of mention them. But I was um, sort of quite tough with myself, you know, sort of, I think on behalf of the reader in trying to do the sort of sorting myself um, so that, you know, I wasn't sort of dumping a lot of information on them and saying, you know, just sort it out you know, sort it out yourself. And so I guess that's kind of a long-winded way of saying that I hope, you know, I think in some ways that First Casualty is um, is the best book because, um, you know, it's built on my sort of experience of, of writing the other two. And as long as you don't become jaded or, you know, you don't, you don't get into that situation where you just want to write, you know, a bad book because you're just going to earn a little bit of money out of it. You know, I, you know, I, I, I want to, I don't believe in writing bad books and, um, you know, I'm proud of all three of them, but, um, you know, I like to think that first casualty is sort of the culmination of, you know, all the work I've done in my, my life so far, but, you know, I brought all of that to bear on, you know, getting people to talk to me, um, talking to them in the way that I did and, and, and drawing out sort of what happened. Yeah, and I mean, I mean the timing's impeccable as well. Just to snapshot the story of Afghanistan, I mean a lot of people were curious as to how it all began and how did we get here in the first place. So, um, yeah, obviously wrapping up and coming to the end. That I mean, I, you didn't write a book in thirty days. You you had this lined out uh, prior to this even going down, and it just it's a it's a good culmination to understand kind of where it all began. Yeah, I mean, we always knew we were always aiming for 9/11, the 20th anniversary of 9/11, because that felt like a, you know, a point in history where we, you know, we could sort of look back on those events, you know, after Al Qaeda hit us, and you know, and as I was doing the writing, and you know, as I said, when I was in Afghanistan at the end of 2020, I did, you know, both Trump and Biden, you know, were committed to withdrawing all the troops, and it looked like, you know whoever won that was going to happen and so increasingly as research went on uh you know i was getting the sense of like wow it's like i don't know it's like 
two trains coming down the track, you know, the 20th anniversary and the, you know, withdrawal from Af- Afghanistan that are going to sort of collide at a, exactly the point um, when the book's published. And that's pretty much uh, how it happened. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I was caught in a sort of tsunami of news. But, you know, there were some downsides to that though as well. I mean, I, I do think, I hope now that things have settled down a little bit, that people do want to find out about how this started and 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 um how we got into this because some of the you know, some of the news coverage didn't even mention 9-11 but at the same time you know i'm sure you found this everybody's a freaking expert yeah. all of a sudden on cable news and so all the people that have been going on about covid and all the rest of it are suddenly you know pontificating about afghanistan when you know they didn't know anything you know knew very little about it and never been to the place um so you know you get sort of swept up in that sort of cable news kind of wave of stuff um but yeah i mean it's i mean it does feel to me it feels you know it it kind of vindicates my sense that this was a book that was worth writing that this was a real sort of contribution um and it was something and it's something that you know people would have a feel that they should read or you know even needed to read yeah just it's funny i i messaged jack carr uh, who's a buddy of mine he's i mean he's yeah. down the road he's a good friend of mine and i'm like man you gotta have this guy on the podcast he's like all oh, right i already got it booked i'm like oh crap he's he's ahead of me because the the author perspective of uh, that conversation and I'm, you know i'm i'm actually under contract right now doing a book um it, it's such a, a an, an awesome thing when you have an author who has the experience to make sense of the context. It's not, it's not like a, um, I mean, there's so many of them. I don't want to call anybody out, but the, you know, the authors who are manufacturing or making things up with no understanding of how to stitch things together. Cause they had, they, they lack the experience. Um, it's almost like this book was designed, uh, from your experience and war and conflict. Uh, I know you did a documentary on on PTS, yeah. And then and then making sense of all that to put together, uh, I think the perfect story. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, and and yeah. So I'm looking. So you. So I'm. Yeah. This is happening before. Um, I've done the podcast with Jack Carr, but you know, yeah, great minds think alike sometimes. That's but that's <laughs> you know that's fantastic. Thank you for putting the word in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's he's ahead of me. He's he's all over it. Um. Uh, Toby, what's what's some places right now that um, people can get your book? I know it's out in hardcover, and I, I thought I saw a soft cover as well. But it, but where's the primary focus for somebody that's going to get this? And is there a place in the near future because this probably airs soon where you're doing rounds or engagements? Like, is there is, is there like an inst, is the Instagram the place to follow you to see where the next yes. uh, book signing is going to be? Yeah, so I'm trying to be very easy to get hold of, but yeah, so tobyhander.com, the website, tobyhander1 on Instagram, and I'm I'm pumping out a lot, as you've seen, you know, a lot of photos um, of the sort of mission and of the, of the era because there's only so many you can have in the actual book. And Twitter, just at tobyhander, and um, yeah, I went to the Special Forces Association convention in Vegas last weekend, which was which was fun and you know great to meet all all those guys. I'm going to New York to do a couple of events there, an ROTC event and uh, the New York Athletic Club. 
And, you know, I'm very much open to suggestions about groups that might like to have me talk and, and, and sell books because, you know, I'm, I really want to get the word out sort of far and wide. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, um, you know, um, there's not been a ton of bookshops, you know, who've been saying, come along, you know, I don't, I don't know whether people want anti-Trump books or, 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 you know, celebrities or, or whatever, but it's, um, you know, I'm kind of constantly sort of trying to break through the noise, you know? Yeah. It might be cool to actually come out here and do something. I know I'm, um, you know, I've had everybody here from, uh, uh, Kyle Lamb to, you know, either I'm trying to convince Brad Holling. I know you ran into Brad at, oh, yeah. at the, uh, the association meet or, or some engagement. Um, but, uh, I've had Jack Carr here for a book signing as well. So it would, it'd be kind of cool to, to see if we could potentially set something up for a book signing. Um, oh yeah, I would do it. Yeah. yeah it'd be, yeah, yeah, it'd yeah. be real cool. And it, it's a, it's a quite a flight from Heber city, Utah, but um, it, it'd be worth the trip. And then um, we could record it. We could, you know, fill the, the room full of people that are interested in this kind of context. Cause it's always cool to do book signings, but it's also have somebody there to, to host and narrate, the author and ask questions and kind of engage with the audience. That's, that's what I found. That's pretty cool. And I think me and yeah. Jack Carr are, are, are doing that. Yeah, I would certainly, I would certainly do that. Awesome, man. Yeah. Awesome. We'll, we'll set something up post podcast, but, um, well, thank you, man. I appreciate having you on the podcast and taking the time. Um, you know, if you guys are listening to this podcast, you guys could pick up the book first casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge, 9-11 and I'll have that in the notes via an Amazon link. Did you, did you do an audible or a audio recording? Yes. Oh. Yeah. So, so not me, um, with my English voice. Um, but a guy called Dan Warren, who's a great narrator, you know, he did a, he did a wonderful job. Awesome. Awesome. Toby, thank you so much for being on the podcast, man. And look forward to, uh, catching up with you and potentially having you out here. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, no, I'd love to do that. And thanks very much, Mike. I mean, I love the podcast and I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks, man.